the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are three books. And those particular Gospels, they're like um, looking at the life of Christ through a video machine. They're looking at Christ and they're seeing his whole life as it transforms and passes by them. And so they're capturing it all, sometimes quite quickly. Another way to look at it is that these three guys, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are looking at the life of Christ from a different perspective. That's why those of you that have read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're pretty similar to one another, but yet there's little nuances that are a lot different. It would be, heaven forbid, that there would be an accident out here on the Poly Highway. And some of you were out in the parking lot, so you were up close and you saw it. Others of you were maybe here in your car getting ready to pull out of the parking lot, and then you saw it. And others of you were up in one of our upper rooms up here, and you looked out the window and you saw the accident. All of you saw the same accident, but as they took your testimony, you would write it from a different perspective. It would all be accurate. Some of you would have different in the writing than another person would, but it wouldn't be a lie. It would be like technicolor. Now, John is different. John is what we might say is someone who would write and he picked it up as a snapshot is in comparison to the video. So as a snapshot, he's able to drill deeper. Those of you who are very artistic, I mean really artistic, where you go to the museums and the art museums and you look at those beautiful pictures up there. Do you or have you seen others as they stand there, they look at the picture and they just stand there for like 30 minutes and they're staring at it. Have any of you ever seen them do that? Would you raise your hand? Good, I'm glad three or four, that means the rest of you are at the beach probably. But anyway, you're looking at this picture because they're looking at every little nuance. When John writes about Jesus Christ, he is now going to slow it all down, wrap it up in just a couple of weeks and he's going to talk about Christ and we're going to call it 3D, third dimensional. And if it's third dimensional, there's three basic parts of Christ that he is going to amplify. And obviously, as he talks about it, he's going to come at it from different angles. But the three of them would be a part of his physical life. Remember in this Bible, it's the shortest book, shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. So that's the physical part of him. And there's a lot more we'll talk about later. The second part of them deals with what we'll call the spiritual nature of Christ. And we'll talk a lot about that because Jesus is God and how that whole thing fits together as best as we can in the time that we have. But the third area is talking about the eternality of him or the eternal life of Christ and how we can have eternal life. And that's why I took you to John chapter 20, verse 31, because it wraps up around Christ, believing in him. So the whole theme of the book in a few words that we're going to use here, and you'll find it in our tapes and all of that, is simply a belief for life. Obviously, you have to believe. It can't be belief in works. It has to be a belief, but it has to have the right object. It has to be Christ as Lord. And then the life you have is not only this life, but the life to come. He came that he might give you life and that you might have it more abundantly. So we call it a belief for life. So I hope that might help you just a little bit more to know about it. Let me go back to John now. Remember how I told you that he slows down and he picks up some things? 
When you compare John to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to find that John chooses to, to park on various words and concepts so that you can get a better picture of who Christ is. When I was doing my research, here's what I found out. First of all, the word life is found in Matthew seven times, once in the book of Mark, seven times in the book of Luke, but in John alone it's found 76 times. So we are really going to learn about Christ's life and Him imparting eternal life and how we can have that life of Christ in us as well. Another word that he uses is the word witness. In fact, he uses the word witness and testify about 77 times compared to the 113 times that it's found in other parts of Scripture. So witness is found one time in Matthew, 22 times in Mark, three times in Luke, and just the word witness alone in the Gospel of John, not in all of John's writings, is found 22 times. But here's the one I'd like you to remember. If you forget those, this one I really want you to remember. And I suggest it to you as your friend. When you take the book of John, I encouraged all of you to begin reading through it, and I pray that you do. It's an easy book, seven, 21 chapters, seven days a week. If you read a chapter a day, you'd have it read in three weeks. But I encourage you to slow down, go deeper into the well, and drink that cool water. But as you do, start your first assignment. Read it through once as much as you can in, in the longest sitting that you have. So you have to force yourself to maybe do that, but do it. So you get a, a bigger picture, zoop, all at one time. The next time that you come back to it, I'd like you to have your pen ready, and I'd like you to mark the word believe. Now, when you mark it, do all the conjugations of the word believe. Believe, believer, believing, all of that. Just count believe. Have your kids do that, too. Make it a family event, because what you're going to do now, again, John chapter 20, the big theme is believe, remember? Now you're going to park down, and you're going to show them how many times that it's found there. Now, don't do it all in one sitting. Go slowly. and Keep marking it. Have the family do it. Whatever version of the Bible that you might have, you just do that believe thing there. Now, when you're all done with it, if you have a version that is as true to the, uh, to the copies of the original writings, the literal, you'll find that the word believe is not found 10 times, not 20 times, not 30 times, not 40 times, not 50 times, not 60 times, not 70 times, not 80 times, but 98 times alone. Now, you're all writing it down. You're going to compare your Bibles. You go ahead and do that because now when you're reading through it, and by the way, parentheses, is that I love to give the book of John as the very first book in the Bible for a new believer to read. And then their assignment is to mark the word believe. Why? Because I want God's word to seal the deal with them that it's only by faith in Christ, by believing in him. Now, there's other words that seem to be more prevalent in the book of John than other places in Scripture, and that would be the word love and the word world and other things as well, but that might help you understand it. Now, I would like to speak for a few moments to those of you that are on the beginning of your journey of the Bible study or maybe even with God. Let's go back now to John chapter 1. I'm going to read just a few verses, and I'm going to make my statement here. So follow along for those of you that are reading it. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He is in the beginning with God. And let me stop. Most people that are new begin reading that, and often they'll put their Bibles down and say, Man, I do not understand that. That, that seems like it's so confusing. I don't know where it's going right here. Well, I'd like to share with you what works for me in my personal Bible study and as I prepare to preach my sermons. Those of you that have been with me for the last six, seven, almost seven years now, I will follow what I'm going to give to you in a very specific way. If you listen to my past sermons, you will find that I generally follow what I'm going to give to you now. What I'm going to teach you right now is what we teach in our spiritual maturity class. We have a Discover Spiritual Maturity seminar. The next one will be on our... Uh, 
April 29th. We'll teach you that along with a lot of other things. But it is what I call a very important phrase, the application bridge. You'll see it in those of you that have notes. If not, those of you who are listening on the radio, just jot this down. I follow this because I believe it's a wonderful balance. So if we're going to go through this passage, which I don't know how much time I have today to get through this. We'll see. I'm going to show you three of the greatest truths that you can trust, and I will use this application bridge. Now, I will follow this bridge, but not so specifically the next time I preach to you and farther, further on down the road. But I want you to see the foundation. This is the foundation you would want if you're serious about studying God's Word. And those of you that are in other churches listening to this, I hope you stay in that church, get involved in that church, grow in that church. But if you want some serious study of God's Word, I encourage you to be with us on Sunday or at least get these messages. So let's look at it, if you will, for just a moment right here. It's called the application bridge. The first thing you want to do is you want to find out what did the writer say to those people who lived in those days. So you might call it the then principle. What about then? What's the interpretation? Now you can spend more time or less time in that. You can go over geographically, historically, politically, spiritually. You can go over it language-wise, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and the combination. You can really parse it all and really understand what was the writer saying to the people back then. Then you move from that to what we call the timeless principles. That would be, all right, I know what he was meaning then. What are the principles that he is now teaching us for today? So you're looking at that special principle life. And so you'll notice a lot of my messages will have the principles to live by, but it's based upon what does, what does it mean? What does it mean back then? What's the truth of the matter? And then we go to the next level, which is the now, and I call that personalization. Some of you might be jotting down application in there. So you want to go to the, what does it really mean? So it's the interpretation, the implication, and the personalization. Now listen very carefully. When you go to a Bible study, whether it's a small group study or you're with a bunch of buddies at work or school or wherever, and they say, let's study the Bible, and so they read something, and the very first thing that they say is, okay, what does that mean to you? The moment that they said that, I have two feelings. My first feeling is, Oh, that is really neat. They want to personalize God's Word. They don't want to just have all this stuff out there that's head knowledge and not, not to live by. So I feel very good about that because they're personalizing God's Word. They're making it work today. On the other side of it, I have a conflict because a lot of times people will say, this is what it means to me, and therefore that means it's truth. Just because of what it means to you does not mean what it means to you is what it really means that God wants you to know what it means. So you begin to define and create doctrine on what it means to you without good understanding of what it has to say. Are you tracking with me, anyone? Anyone? Okay. Now with that, we have the bridge. The best way to know what does this mean to me is to what does it mean, period. Now, if all you do is, what does this mean, and we end there, you can have a lot of head knowledge, and the result of that could be puffed up pride because you know more than everybody, and you can argue the truth with everybody, but your life doesn't show it. On the other hand, if you want to apply it to your life, the best way to do that is to know, and by the way, when you apply it because you have correct interpretation, the application part of this is really huge, is now sustainable. There are a lot of people that will do all the application part, but it's not working for them, and they start blaming Christianity or they drop out of Christianity. It's because they really they don't lose their salvation necessarily, but they do lose that intimacy with the Lord because they, they're, they're applying something inaccurately so the Spirit can't work with them on that, and so they're in conflict all the time until they know that it's true. If you're all with me, can you say amen to that? 
Now today, I'm reluctantly using this in such a specific manner. The reason being is, this passage we're to cover in the time that I have is very rich. It probably should be a verse a Sunday, but if we did that, then really, um, I would die before I'd ever finish this book. But I wanted you to have this particular bridge, the application bridge, in such a way that we'd be able to follow it as easy as possible. So here we go. I want to give you the three great truths that we can trust. Now, these aren't the only truths that we can trust, but in the context of Scripture, if you had to say, what are the three greatest truths in this passage of Scripture that I can trust, I'm going to give them to you. There's many more, but there are three that we're going to learn today. <clears throat> Let's look at the first one, Jesus is God. Now, I think I'm speaking to the, to the choir or singing to the choir now because most all of you will believe that Jesus is God. Some of you believe it because your parents told you that. Some of you believe it because you read some books. Some of you believe it enough that you might be able to fuss over it, might even spill a little blood over it. But I don't know that you'd be able to defend the position that Jesus is God enough if someone came knocking on your door that says, no, Jesus isn't God. He's a mighty God, but he's not the almighty God. And so I'd like to take at least this passage to begin to show you that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is God. So let's look at it together a little bit more slowly now. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And as I read this to you, we're going to follow that application bridge. So the first question is, what did this mean to the original writers? Obviously, it'll mean the same to us. It's not going to change over time. But what did it mean to them? Now, this is why you're going to have to open your Bible because I'm going to spend a lot of time parsing some of these words. The reason I'm doing that is not to wow you in my Bible knowledge. I really don't have a lot of... I know a little Greek. He owns a restaurant in downtown Honolulu. But the point of the matter is I want to share this with you to let you know the richness and the veracity of your faith is relying upon the inerrant word of God and you can trust this and this book is worthy not only to listen to it's not only to read it's to apply to your life and defend to death all right with that let's begin verse one it says in the beginning was the word now we already know that that's going to be referring to Jesus Christ and I'll show you how to link that in a moment but with that Assumption already. Let's continue. In the beginning was the Word. Now, this is not talking about just in the beginning of all time. Some of you might think it must be the beginning of all time. Well, that would mean that God had a beginning then. God never had a beginning. Jesus never had a beginning. He's a self-existent one. He always was. He always is. He's the great I am. So this can't mean that, and we know that from other passages. So what does this mean? It would mean that in the beginning of the creation of the world. Now, why would I make that assumption? If you read through the context, which you need to do, you're going to find in verse 3 and other places, it's talking about the beginning of the world. All right, so in the beginning. Then it says, was the word. Now, what's interesting in the Greek, it's in a particular tense that means it's a continuous existence. So in the beginning, the word was continually existing. Not it was, it just started then. It was already in existence at the beginning of the creation of the world. Then it says, and the word was with God. Now, that's a very uh, interesting passage. And the word was with God. It's not saying, and the word is now not with God. It was with him then, but not now. Remember, the word was is continual existence. So the word was continually existing with God. Now, if you would look up here for just a moment. If I had the time and I could bring one of you up here, I could take, let me just use my sweet wife, okay? That'd be a good, not that you have to come up, honey, you can relax, okay? But she's over here, and I say, Carol, come on up here. I would be with Carol on this stage. Now, while it is true, the word was with God, it's Carol is with Stan, not that I'm God, okay? Don't go there, all right? So we're together on the stage. 
This word is a very unusual word when it says he was with them. As you read through the context of Scripture, it's more than they were with each other. It said they had an intimate connection to one another. So it would be if I brought Carol up here, so instead of standing with her on the stage, we now stand and we look at each other. And I can look into Carol's eyes and make all those goo-goo eyes at hers or whatever they call them and she gives me all those goo-goo eye look back again and you that are married know exactly what I'm telling my wife can communicate from across the room at your house if I was having dinner especially if I'm getting out of hand she knows how to give me that stink eye that doesn't look like a stink eye but I can tell it a stink eye we look at each other we're gazing at each other listen the word and God never give stink eyes to one another but they are intimately connected to each other now let's take it a step further They not only are with each other, they are not only intimately connected to one another. Look at the next phrase. It says, and the word was with God and the word was God. So while they both have separate responsibilities in a sense, different uh, different actions, you'll have God the Father gave God the Son. So you separate them out. God the Holy Spirit who convicts and has his ministries, although they are together. They are also one together. So in a sense, you're seeing the deity in the beginning of what to explain it would be the Trinity. So while they could be separate, they are still vitally very much connected together. The word was with God and the word was God. Now, it begs to bring this out, if you're going to understand at the time. You had two different audiences. I know you had a lot of audiences, but let's just divide them into two. One audience would be your Jewish audience. The other audience would be your, your Greek audience. Now, the Greeks were all about knowledge and knowing, etc. In the beginning of the Gnosticism, basically was uh, going to start soon. And I believe Jesus was already con- uh, confronting that by this teaching. But it going on to this. They were the ones that said, oh, the knowledge, and I've got to have more and more wisdom. And there's an abstract reasoning up there. And that's why you see them at other times in Scripture. They're always debating which God is the right God and what truth is the right truth. And by the way, they would throw God in there as part of the package. And they'd throw, maybe throw Jesus a little bit further down in history into the package. But that didn't mean they saw Jesus as God or that there is only one God. All right, They just saw him as many little gods, many little belief systems, etc. That's what the Greeks taught. Now stay with me on this. So as you go through this passage, what happens now is that God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John's writing, is going to show them, you want to see all this abstract writing? I'm now going to personalize it, personify it in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God, not a God. He is God. So he's taking all that abstract junk that Greek has out there, their philosophies, and he brings it all into a real touch you type individual, which would be Jesus Christ, who is God, the only God. Now, the Jews, when he spoke to them, it was similar but a little different. Now, I don't have the time to totally unpack this, but my good friend, Arnold Fruchtenbaum of REL Ministries, he came here last year, did a teaching. I would encourage you to get his material on this passage of Scripture because he, being a Jew, can open this up in a way that would be far better than I ever could fully understand. But here's what I can tell you, so at least you have an understanding of the Jewish nature of this. The Jews would look upon this whole thing as, I want wisdom, I want power, I, I understand this whole concept of, of wise and, and, and good ra- rationalization, and I understand about the strength of God and order and these kinds of things. And so now what John does is he presents Christ as being in your presence, the word is powerful. Now one other link, the Jewish people 
who obviously knew the Old Testament writings. They knew the existence of God, that God would speak and the world was created. The word of God would be there because when God said something, things happened. Or when he told them to do something, they obeyed God and God blessed. And if they didn't, they, he didn't get, they didn't get blessed. And so it was all on the spoken word of God as it then was then recorded. So they knew a lot about it. Here was where we're going with it. John now says, all right, that's all the spoken word of God. Now I want you to see the logos, the logos here. I want you to see God now. All that that he spoke is in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God who spoke all wrapped up in one. So that's then. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched the show. This will date me, you young people here. But when I was younger, they used to have a television program called Columbo. Anybody remember the show Columbo? You know, that little raunchy little beat up little beach car he had and his rumples whatever they call it, uh, top coat on. Today, they would watch Monk and Psych. Maybe watch those guys. How many watch those? Raise your hand. Good. Oh, you're watching TV. All right. Now, <laughs> then those of you that go to the movies, you remember um, Sherlock Holmes. They all follow the same basic style, which is they ask a lot of questions, and then they present a little bit of truth, and a little bit more truth, 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 and then they said... Thou art the man, you're the killer, you're the, you're the murderer, whatever you are. Well, in this case, that's that same basic logic. He is building his case to show to the world that Jesus is Almighty God. Now with that, follow along as I now connect the dots for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, which is very interesting. First he talks about word, now he talks about he. So the word was in the beginning, he was in the beginning. So we're building the case. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So everything was at the beginning. The word, God, Jesus Christ, all that was made, were made together by the same person. I'll continue. You can go all through the scripture, which if I have time, I'll get through that today. But if not, you want to drop down to verse 14 in your Bibles, and you can mark it. Okay, it's not a sin to write in your Bible here, okay? Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh. So you can draw a line between verse 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh. This very Word that was with God at the very beginning. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. And that became flesh, who was He, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the, here's that phrase, only begotten of the Father, full of grace. Now, the rest of John and all of Scripture is going to point back to the person of Jesus Christ. So it all comes back to Christ. He was the one who was at the beginning, preceded the beginning of creation. So therefore, he was at the beginning with creation because he is God and the whole world was created at that time. To me, I have to tell you this. I don't know where you are in this evolution versus uh, creation thing. I'm not going to get into time here with the, is it a you know, six-day event or not. Here's what I do want you to know. The reason, knowingly or unknowingly, that evolutionists will want to find reasons to substantiate their belief, and I'm not going to put all of them in the camp. They all have different motives for doing this. But predominantly, Satan has got them to really own evolution, and those are the diehard evolutionists. Because if they can, which they won't be, but they're trying to, but if they could put a bullet in the heart of creation, that means then that it wasn't created. If you don't have creation, then it wasn't created. If it wasn't created, you don't have a what, everyone? A creator. 
And so this is so huge to have him bring at this particular point because he's building his case towards you. In order for you to believe in Christ, you have to realize who Christ is. And creation is such a huge part of all of this. So if you put a bullet in that, you don't have it. Now listen, God was from the very beginning, so he's the great I am. We are part of creation. We're always becoming. We're always changing. He will never change. And that's why it's important for us to know that he is God. So I don't know how changing your world is becoming to you. I want you to know Jesus will never change because he is always is, always the great I am, always God. Well, with all of that in mind, we talked about what does it really mean to the hearers and then what does it really mean for us as far as the timeless principle. I'm going to just give it into you in a word. Here it is. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. We've shown you how that was proved then. So the timeless principle means it'll never change. He was God then. He was God before the creation of the world. He is God now. He was God in a cradle as much as he was God on the cross when he died. Not that God died, but Christ died. He was God at resurrection. He is God at the ascension. He is God in heaven. He's the same God who's going to come back for us. He is Lord. That's why we say in order for you to trust Christ, you need to trust Jesus Christ as the Lord who died for you and rose again. You have to believe that he is God. That is essential. So let's bring it back to us now. That would be the, the personalization of this. The personalization is very simple. He is Lord whether I make him the Lord of my life or not, which means he is in control of my life. He's in control of the things that I do in my life. So those of you right now that don't know Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that nothing happens apart from God's permission or prescription. Now, we might make choices and do things in all of this, but the Lord knows all about it. The perfect example is Job from the book of Job, all about it. Now, let's take that even make it more personal. In your life, if there's nobody in this room, and I was sitting down and we were having a cup of coffee together and I put my arm around you and I chatted with you, I would tell you that if you feel like your life is broken... Whatever God makes, God can fix. He made the world, he'll fix the world. He made you because you're part of his creation. You weren't an accident. You're not evolving from some ooze in the Nile River. You have been created by God. And he knows this world is a mess because of sin. He knows your life, if you will be humble enough as I could be for my life, that we're sinners, it's messed up. He wants to fix it. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.